Hi, and welcome back to Parkinson's in Perspective, where we bring you information about the origins, research, treatment, and future directions of Parkinson's disease. My name is Sarah Fargi, and I'm the current president of McGill Students for Parkinson's Awareness. Parkinson's disease is a fairly prominent disorder and affects more than 1% of the population over 65. It's a progressive neurodegenerative disorder with resting tremors, muscle rigidity, slow movements, and impaired balance. Each episode, we are fortunate enough to have a leading researcher in the field come and talk about their research and answer some of our questions. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Zivgan Orr, a researcher at the McGill Neurological Institute. His lab specializes in REM sleep behavior disorders and their connection to the development of Parkinson's disease, and he also looks into the role of lysosomal dysfunction in Parkinson's. Join us this episode as we discuss these topics and their possible therapeutic potential. Good morning, Dr. Zivganor. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Okay, perfect. Um, so could you please start by going into and explain to the listeners what generally lysosomes are and what sort of roles they play into a healthy individual? Yes. So in the popular science, uh, people tend to describe the lysosome as, a, as the waste management or the recycling facility of the cell. So it's a compartment or um, an organelle within the cell that's responsible for maintenance, degradation of proteins, lipids, uh, other organelles, um, regulating all kinds of processes within the cell. Um, so in a way, you can imagine it as a, as a sphere within the cell, that inside the sphere there's acidic pH, where uh, different enzymes are working constantly to degrade and recycle, uh, again, different proteins or lipids or organelles, uh, carb- uh, all kinds of sugars, everything basically is being processed and recycled there. It also has some roles in the immune system and other roles, but uh, this is, I think, a bit outside of the scope uh, of Parkinson's Mm -hmm. disease. Okay, perfect. So it's kind of, the lysosomes sort of act like a trash center in the cell where they break over things for cell turnover. Yeah, but it's not just trash. It's more like trash and recycling, if you want to really imagine it, because what the, the breakdown products of that process, they are being reused again by the cell um, to maintain itself. So it's more like, I, I, I like to think about it more of a recycling facility than a, just a trash facility, but yes. Okay. So I know that a lot of your research stems onto lysosome dysfunction in Parkinson's. Could you kind of expand on that for the listeners? Yes. Um, First, maybe it will be good to clarify the term lysosomal dysfunction, because people might think that when we're saying lysosomal dysfunction, we mean that the entire lysosome is dysfunctional in Parkinson's disease. Uh, This is not the case, uh, because lysosomal dysfunction is uh, would be like a a generalized, a very severe disease. So there are parts of the lysosome that are dysfunctional in Parkinson's disease. And my research is focused on genes, on different genes that are involved in these specific pathways within the lysosome that are dysfunctional. So when we're talking about lysosomal dysfunction in Parkinson's disease, we're talking about, we're talking about specifically several genes that, are, that have several roles within the lysosome. 
that are um, not performing the, the role properly. And as a result, people have higher risk uh, for developing Parkinson's disease. Okay, so I know that one of the things that happen for uh, when there's lysosomal dysfunction that's relevant to Parkinson's disease with the lysosome misfolding is through mutations in the GBA gene. Could you kind of start to paint the picture on what the GBA gene is and how that may affect lysosomes? Yes, absolutely. So the GBA gene is today is known as probably one of the most important genes in Parkinson's disease. Some would say, including myself, the most important gene, but I'm a little bit biased because I've been studying this gene for the last uh, 15 years. And um, this gene, basically GBA, encodes for a protein called glucoserebrosidase. Uh, this, this is an enzyme that uh, resides within the lysosome, and it works on the membrane of the lysosome from the inside, and it degrades uh, certain lipids that are part of the lysosomal membrane. These lipids are, call, are called uh, glucoserebrosides or, uh, or um, glucosphingosine. These are the main two, um, two substrate that the enzyme is working on and degrades. So for example, it takes glucoserebrosides, which is combination between um, a sugar and lipid, and it degrades it to ceramide and glucose. So it has a part in the recycling of glucose and a part of the recycling of this, um, this lipid called ceramide, which is a very important lipid in different membranes and in different, different part of, parts of the cell, not just in the lysosome. So GBA, that's, that's its main role. Now, how was it related to Parkinson's? That's, that's a very long story, but I will try to, <laughs> to uh, go through it very quickly. So basically, GBA, when you have two mutations in the gene, you can develop a disease called Gaucher disease, which is a lysosomal storage disorder. And it was noted already many years ago. The first paper I ever found about it was from 1939 of a patient who had this disease called Gaucher disease who, who also developed Parkinson's disease. And throughout the years, there have been more and more reports of people who had Gaucher disease and also developed Parkinson's disease. And then in 2004, there was a study that looked at Parkinson's disease patients. And these patients were uh, analyzed for mutations in GBA gene, and a very large proportion of them carried mutation uh, mutations in the GBA gene. But unlike people who have Gaucher disease who have two mutations, the people who had Parkinson's disease mostly had a single mutation in only one copy of the gene. You know, each of us, we carry two copies of each of our genes. So one of the copies had a mutation. People who have mutations in this gene are at high risk for um, developing Parkinson's disease. So in the beginning, the, this finding was actually controversial. There were a couple of small studies that... Um, contradicted it, but these studies were very small and a bit inaccurate. And my research as well as others throughout the years showed without a doubt that GBA mutations are very, very important in Parkinson's disease. In fact, it's in, in all populations around the world where it was studied, um, this association was observed between having GBA mutations and having increased risk of Parkinson's disease. So if you look at uh, Populations all over the world with Parkinson's disease between five to twenty percent depends on 
the population, between 5 to 20% of them have mutations in the gene called uh, GBA. So these mutations, they lead to reduced activity of the enzyme. So the enzyme is not functioning as well. So it's not a complete dysfunction. Again, I have to go back to that of the lysosome or of the enzyme, it's partial dysfunction. And this partial dysfunction over the years um, is becoming a risk factor for, for developing Parkinson's disease. And while we don't know the exact mechanism, we have some hypotheses that I think are quite uh, quite interesting, but this is uh, something that we're still studying to this date. Okay, so that's super interesting that with one mutations you get Parkinson's disease, whereas two you can get a completely different disorder. Right. Would yes. you want to go into some of the hypothesis and maybe which one you subscribe to for how the mutations in the GBA gene leads to Parkinson's disease? Yes, I mean, there's um, probably, I, I, I know you, you're doing other post podcasts and uh, I still didn't have the chance to listen to them, but I promise I will. And I'm sure some people mentioned the role of, the, of alpha-synuclein in Parkinson's disease, which is the protein that uh, accumulates in Parkinson's disease. When you do autopsies for people who died after having Parkinson's disease, you find it in different regions of the brain, accumulates in the form of Lewy bodies or neurites, which is uh, the medical term for what we, for what we see in the brain. And um, there's no doubt that we are somehow affecting the accumulation of this, this protein. We don't know exactly how, but there's, as I said, there are several hypotheses. Uh, the one that I like the most, for example, uh, that to me makes the most, uh, most sense is that uh, re related to what I mentioned before about the role of uh, the enzyme encoded by GBA, I'll just call it GKs for now, instead of saying, saying glucoserbosides, we like to call it uh, GKs. So GKs, this enzyme, as I said, works on the membrane of the lysosome and basically degrades within the membrane, degrades glucoserbosides into glucose and ceramide. So in a way, you can think of it as this enzyme basically changes or regulates the composition of the lysosomal membrane. Now, the composition of the lysosomal membrane is crucial for its function because uh, the way the lysosome works, as I told you in the beginning, it degrades all, kind of, all kinds of things. And these things need to be internalized into the lysosome from the outside of the lysosome. And there are different ways by which uh, the lysosome can internalize proteins and sugars and lipids and organelles inside inside of it. And all these processes are basically regulated by the composition of the lysosomal membrane, among other things. So I think when you have mutations in GBA, um, what happens is that as you age throughout, um, throughout your life, the lysosomal uh, membrane changes slowly. And slowly it reduces its ability to internalize this protein I mentioned before, alpha-synuclein. And as a result, alpha-synuclein accumulates in the cells. It cannot be recycled, it accumulates. And when um, it accumulates, um, it kind of self-accumulates. Once you start having accumulation, it's like, a, you can think of it like a crystal or like a seed when you have um, alpha-synuclein starting accumulating, the other free alpha-synuclein that is in the cell and supposed to um, perform its function mainly in the synapses accumulates. And then 
there could be two options. Either the accumulation itself is toxic to the cell or the reduction of the available alpha-synuclein um, is, uh, is toxic to the cell. And that we still don't know. Most people think it's the, the, the former, that the accumulation of alpha-synuclein is toxic. In any case, this is the mechanism that, that I think. So just to summarize, uh, GBA mutations lead to reduced activity of the enzyme GKs, which leads to uh, changes in the lysosomal membrane, which lead, leads to uh, reduced internalization of alpha-synuclein into the membrane, into the lysosome for degradation and accumulation of alpha-synuclein. Um, all of this is still an hypothesis. It, there are evidence for it, but it's not something that we can say is, you know, there's like strong proof for it. But there are also other hypotheses that, that exist as to the role of uh, GBA in Parkinson's. Okay, so it kind of ties into the common Lewy body hypothesis seen in Parkinson's, where since we don't really know with the alpha synuclein deposits, but we think that that's what's leading to the Parkinson's pathology. So any right. mutations that occur in GBA might lead to the accumulation of alpha-synuclein, which also means more Lewy bodies. Right, and, and we know that specifically for GBA because when we do autopsies for people who had GBA mutations in Parkinson's, we see a lot of Lewy bodies. And this is really different from, uh, from some other genes that are involved in Parkinson's disease. Uh, for example, maybe we'll talk about LARC2 later. So LARC2, only 50% of people with LARC2 mutations, when you do autopsies, you actually find alpha-synuclein accumulation. I know that in one of your previous podcasts, you talked about Parkin, which is another gene that causes a familial form of uh, Parkinson's disease. So people with Parkin mutations almost never have alpha-synuclein accumulation. But people with GBA mutations almost always have it. There were, there were a few cases, but the vast, vast, vast majority of uh, people with GBA mutations had alpha-synuclein accumulation. So yes, we think that they are... Um, they work together in some pathway. So the pathway I mentioned is one of the possibilities, but there are a few more. So what you're kind of pitching, and I think what Dr. Trump alluded to in one of our previous podcast episodes where he discussed Parkin and Pink One, is that Parkinson's disease is a spectrum of disorders and there can be mutations in different parts of the pathway that can lead to the similar symptom presentation. Yes, thank you. Thank you for, for asking this question or making this clarification because I 100% I believe that's the case. I don't think we should even call it Parkinson's disease anymore. Um, some people say we should call it Parkinson's diseases or Parkinsonian syndromes or things like that. Um, I think that GBA-associated Parkinson's disease is a different disease than Parkin-related Parkinson's disease, which is different than LARC2-related Parkinson's disease. And while the clinical presentation of the patients seem to be similar, they all have the same or similar motor symptoms, uh, but they do have the way the disease progresses is very different. And as I mentioned a couple of minutes earlier, the brain pathology could be also very different. Uh, and I think that also the underlying mechanism is uh, could be quite different. So absolutely, I think Parkinson's disease is an umbrella term for multiple disorders that are similar clinically, but could be uh, different in the terms of the underlying mechanism and the pathology. 
Wow. So it seems like before we were kind of focusing on maybe solving one part of the puzzle. But now as you learn more and more, you kind of have to step back and realize that there's different sections of it. So then you, you're almost going in blind, but you're solving in little pieces at a time and realizing it's a lot more complicated as you go further in. Yeah, and it may not be one puzzle. It may be multiple puzzles that we need to solve. Uh, my lab my lab is called uh, NAPMED, which stands for uh, Neurogenomics and Precision Medicine Lab. And what we're trying to do, among other things, is to understand these differences between the different types of pathologies and different types of people with different mutations so that when we have we design treatments, they will target specific people with specific genetic background. Um, and I think that eventually will be the way to treat Parkinson's disease. I don't think we will be able to treat Parkinson's disease as a single entity to give one drug that will treat all Parkinson's disease. I think that people with GBA mutations will receive certain drugs and people with large T mutations will receive certain drugs and so on. Wow. So it's really going to change as we move into an age of precision medicine. Maybe some of these get more research on some of these mutations and therapies will develop. And then we could use those as biomarkers to dictate yeah, treatment. Absolutely. I mean, I know we're deviating a little bit from the topic of yeah. the conversation, but if we're, I, I'll, gi I'll give you a, a brief example about a completely different disorder called uh, cystic fibrosis. I'm sure you've heard of it. So yes. cystic fibrosis, unlike Parkinson's disease, is a single gene disease. There's all, only one gene involved, CFTR, and there's many, many mutations in this gene. And actually, these days for cystic fibrosis, we have, we have pretty good treatments, not like we had before. Uh, people with cystic fibrosis or CF uh, died very, very early. These days, with the medications that exist, many of them can live into, uh, you know, into adulthood and into elderly age. But even in a disease like that, you have different drugs that target different mutations because different mutations do different things. Uh, some mutations affect the ability of CFTR to reach the membrane. Some mutations. The, the CFTR reaches the membrane, but it's just inactive. And so you need a drug that will make it active, but you also need a different drug that will take it in, uh, into the membrane, depending on the mutations. So I think a similar thing will happen in Parkinson's disease. And even within people, if we're going back to GBA mutations, it's the same, the same thing. Some GBA mutations, for example, lead to a retention of the GBA gene, of the, not gene, the, the, the enzyme GKs in the endoplasmic reticulum. So it doesn't reach the lysosome to perform its function. So for people with this mutation, maybe drugs that take GKs and bring it into the lysosome will work. Then we have other mutations that the GKs reaches the lysosome without a problem, but, uh, but GKs is inactive. It's in the lysosome, but it's inactive. So for these types of mutations, we will need an activator, something that helps the enzyme becomes active. And then we have completely different mutations that are what we call null mutations, where no protein is created at all. So there's no protein. So for, for these kind of mutations, we will need things like gene therapy, where we add a new, new copies of the gene into the cells, and, um, and then we create new enzyme within the cells. So I think the same will happen in Parkinson's disease. So not, not even not just separating them into different et et, uh, entities like GBA and LARC2 and Parkin, but also within GBA, you'll have, especially, it's especially true for GBA, you'll have different drugs for different types of mutations. We'll have to go really precise if we're talking about precision medicine. Wow, so we're really just on the tip of the iceberg of what we need 
needs to be discovered and how we can treat the different versions of that. Right, right. I mean, if you look back at all the clinical trials that were done for Parkinson's disease, there's been dozens and dozens of clinical trials and all of them have failed. I'm talking about drugs that are aimed to stop the disease, not to treat the symptoms, but actually stop the disease pathology. All of these trials have failed. And this could be one of the main reasons that we clump all Parkinson's patients together and we try drug that maybe will be good for some of them, but not for all. But then when we include all of them, we don't see a signal. We don't see uh, the drug. Uh, we see as if the drug is not working. So I think one of the things that we will have to do in order to stop failing would be to um, create clinical trials that are targeting specific mutations in specific genes. And, and it's actually being done. There's also already the first uh, phase two trial of uh, uh, a drug to, that targets people with GBA mutations uh, was completed. Unfortunately, it had failed also. Uh, they tested a different hypothesis than what I mentioned before. They had a completely different hypothesis on what causes people with GBA mutations to develop Parkinson's disease, and this trial had failed. But at least it was a trial that was a lot more specific and had better chances to, to succeed. So I think it, it was the right direction in general, and that's the direction we will have to take if we really want to find cure for Parkinson's disease in the end. Wow. So it seems that maybe in the past there was a drug that perhaps could have worked for a specific subset of patients, but the results from it may have been affected because there was poor patient population that it was tested on based off what we know now about the different subtypes. Yes, exactly. This is this is, um, this is a possibility. Um, one day we'll have to test it. We'll have to test it. Unfortunately, in most of these trials, uh, they did not collect genetic data. So for if they had, then we could do post-talk. Like after the trial, we could reanalyze the results and see if there are specific types of people for which the drugs had helped. But unfortunately, in the vast majority of this trial, this was not done because then, back then, the knowledge about the genetics of Parkinson's disease was not as strong as it is today. Uh, so I hope that even trials that are being done today, even if they are taking all Parkinson's disease patients, they will still be smart enough to um, collect genetic data for the patients and other biomarkers so that they can maybe analyze after the trial ends, maybe there has been a few patients or a subgroup of patients that benefited from the treatment. Wow, that's super interesting. And it's definitely one of the things that I do hope starts to be implemented in future trials, especially with all this new groundbreaking research, looking yes. into the different subtypes. We don't want it to fall through just because of something as simple as forgetting to take the genetic background to see the different patient subtypes. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what my my lab, that's one of the main things that my lab and myself uh, are doing. I'm, I'm consulting lots of uh, pharmaceutical companies, advocating for it, trying to make it happen. Some companies are really for it. Some, some companies are still a bit behind. But I think in general, there's a lot of progress towards the, this direction of really characterizing the patients very well before starting the trial, including genetics and um, and and trying to identify spe again specific drugs for these specific uh, subgroups. The same thing happens with LARC2 and a bit less with Parkin because it's a lot more rare. But there are drugs that are trying to target Parkin as well. Wow. And I know you've mentioned a bit before about LERC2 and how that kind of starts to tie into uh, lysosomal dysfunction that's specific for Parkinson's. And we've kind of like grazed over it because we've 
got a really great conversation going about different drugs and stuff. But just to kind of keep the listeners in the loop, would you be able to describe what LERC2 is and how it can be affected in Parkinson's disease? Yes, so LERC2 stands for uh, Leucine Rich Repeat Kinase 2, which is, as its name implies, it's a kinase. So it it phosphorylates itself as well as other proteins and make them active or non-active depending uh, on the phosphorylation sites, etc. And uh, to be honest, we we don't really know the mechanism. I mean, we don't know the mechanism for Parkinson's disease in general, so it, it's not a huge surprise. But uh, also for LARC2, while we do know a lot more about it than we knew before, we still don't know what is the exact mechanism that leads to Parkinson's disease. We do know that it uh, phosphorylates a number of proteins called Rab proteins uh, that are... Um, possibly related to lysosomal function as well, uh, maybe more to the recycling of membranes and things like that. Uh, so the exact mechanism, and there are many, many, if you look at the scientific liter- literature, there are many, many hypotheses as to how LARC2 is involved in Parkinson's disease, a lot more than in GBA, because about because we know a lot less about LARC2. GBA, we were lucky in a sense that it was already connected to a different disease, like we talked about before, Gaucher disease for for decades. Gaucher disease was described in the 19th uh, century. So it, it's, it's, GBA has been studied a lot more than LARC2. So what we know about LARC2 comes from studies in the last, I would say, 15, 16 years. Um, and um, there are many, many hypotheses related to uh, how it how it affects uh, how it leads to Parkinson's disease. Uh, one of them is, uh, or more than one of them, involves the, the lysosome. So you see that if you look at cells with, uh, um, of, from cell, uh, from models of LARC2 mutations, you see, if you look at the lysosome, you see that the lysosome are swollen and they're not uh, uh, functioning properly. But how exactly this happens and how that leads to Parkinson's disease, we still don't know. Wow. It's interesting that a lot of the spectrum of disorders, I know this is your area of research, so that's probably why we're focusing on it today. But it's interesting to see that a lot of them are all focused on lysosome dysfunction and how that ties into the current hypothesis of the Lewy body hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, I work a lot on lysosomal dysfunction, but my my I would say that my research is actually I'm, I'm a geneticist, so my research is genetics. But what we learn from genetics is that there are a lot of genes. The genes that we discover that are involved in Parkinson's disease, many of them are involved in the lysosome, and that's why we're focusing a lot on the lysosome as well. Um, but as I mentioned before, we still we we still have a lot to learn also. So we know that the lysosome is there. We know that um, GBA, we know some things about it. The LARC2, we know some things about it. But the specific mechanisms that lead to Parkinson's disease, we still don't fully understand. So as you start to learn more about how these mutations and genes that affect uh, lysosomes for Parkinson's disease, their role, do you suspect that eventually we'll start to have specific therapies for them being developed? And how far down the line do you see those starting to be implemented or starting to head into early phase clinical trials? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I'm I'm uh, working with multiple uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, mainly on GPA, but also on some other targets. And there are many 
many different trials that are happening at the moment. Some of these trials, as I mentioned before, the vast majority of these trials are still targeting Parkinson's disease as a whole, as a single entity. But there are other trials that are targeting only people with GBA mutations, only people with large mutations, only people with Parkin mutations, etc. Oh, so they're uh, already starting to be implemented. Yes, 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 absolutely. The, the, there's been already a few... I, uh, the, there's been one phase two clinical trial on GBA and there's been a few phase one clinical trials on GBA with different compounds and different uh, um, mechanistic targets, uh, I would say. Next year, there will be uh, another trial uh, or maybe two trials, uh, actually, that will start on people with GBA mutations. Uh, hopefully, we will be involved in both at the neuro. Um, and there's also trials coming for people with uh, LARC2 mutations. There's been already phase one trials and uh, phase two trials are coming maybe also next year or the year after. Now you asked me something that I want to address um, like about, um, I, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but about the time frame or um, this is something that I really don't like to do and um, talking about times, because if you look, if you read, look at papers. I remember even as a teenager or um, in my 20s seeing uh, a title in a, in a newspaper saying, you know, breakthrough in Alzheimer's disease and the researchers ex expect that we'll have a drug in 10 years, stuff like that. So we see this over and over, over again, and we don't get these drugs. And we get what we do get is false hopes for for people with Parkinson's disease or with other neurodegenerative diseases. And this is something we definitely don't want to do. We want to give hope, but we don't want to give false hope. So I, I really have to be careful with what I say about this. So I, I'm not going to say things like, oh, I think maybe in five years or, or 10 years, because the honest answer is that we don't know. But what what do give us gives us hope is that um, we have learned a lot and we are learning a lot about the mechanisms, about the specific subtypes, and we're becoming more and more accurate in the way we develop drugs and the way we target specific genes with specific mutations. So I do think that it it will eventually work. I just, I, I can't say when, and I hope that this will be as soon as possible. But um, yeah, so so that would be my answer. But I'm, if, if you want to know more specific details, I'm happy to provide them. No, that's definitely an incredibly fair point, an important point to bring up. I think even though we are not quite sure how a lot of these drugs will play out, one of the big take-home messages that really can provide hope to some patients listening or caregivers listening is there's a lot of effort being done to find new therapies and mechanisms on how to target the disease. So even though we don't know how they'll play out, we know that there's a big, strong force trying to get something to play out. Absolutely. I think there's currently... Over the world, there's over 100 di uh, different trials just for Parkinson's disease. Wow, that's incredible. So hopefully to the listeners um, tuning in, that helps rise your spirits up because I know yeah. Parkinson's has been a long and tiring disease and especially like with only symptomatic treatments available. It's at least promising to me to hear that there's things being done. Yes, there's a lot being done and eventually there will be things that will work. And I think we are on the right path now when we're looking at these specific subtypes and trying to really characterize Parkinson's patients properly uh, for the trials. Because if you talk to people with Parkinson's disease, and I'm sure that you do, um, and, and they know other people with Parkinson's disease, they will tell you that every Parkinson's disease patient is different. 
they're different in how their disease progresses, about this, their symptoms. They're, of course, different in their genetic background and they're different in their environmental exposures and different in many, many different ways. And um, our job understand as much as we can these differences and how they affect their ability or uh, the drugs that will be beneficial for them in the end. Wow, that's super interesting. Okay, so I know we've talked about a lot about lysosomal dysfunction and the role of GBA and LERC2, but just to kind of switch gears, I know, like you said, you've also have a wide range of research that you do at your lab. And I know one of the things that you've looked into is correlations between um, REM sleep disorders and Parkinson's disease. For listeners who are tuning in, this is probably something that they haven't really heard of for this connection to occur. Would you be able to briefly go over what some of your findings are and how you see the connection between these two disorders? Yes, absolutely. So first, let's start with defining what REM sleep behavior disorder is. Uh, REM sleep behavior disorder, I will call it in short from now on RBD just to not say this mouthful of words all the time. So RBD is, um, let's start with defining what REM sleep is, REM sleep. So REM sleep is the phase of the sleep where we dream when REM stands for rapid eye movement. So you probably all heard about it when you dream, your eyes are closed, but you see that the eyes are are moving from side to side. And this is the phase of the sleep where we dream. Now, normally, when we dream, our voluntary muscles are paralyzed. There's a part of the brain that is responsible for inhibiting these muscles so that if we dream something, we don't enact it because if we enact it, we might hurt ourselves. You know, we dream and then we dream that we run, so we will run and fall out of the window, right? So the muscles are inhibited. But people with RBD, their muscles are not inhibited, so they are enacting their dreams. So if I'm now dreaming that I'm playing basketball, I will make movements of, of you know, playing basketball. Now, this is very different than sleepwalking. Sleepwalking occurs in different phase of the sleep, so I'm not talking about sleepwalking. Um, RBD is really enacting the, the content of your dream or moving while you dream. And... Uh, what what is really fascinating for us is that people who have that so people can have it for different reasons some reasons are related to medications that they take or um trauma that they had like brain trauma or others so i'm not talking about these people i'm talking about people that have it for unknown reasons they don't take any medications that can cause it and they don't have and they didn't have brain trauma so these people uh, and we're talking about actually a large pr- proportion of the population, close to 1% of the elderly population. These people with RBD in about in about 10 to 12 years after the onset of RBD, they will develop either Parkinson's disease or dementia with Lewy bodies or uh, in rare cases, a disease called multiple system atrophy. The common for all these diseases is that they are all related to alpha synuclein accumulation. They're all what we call synucleinopathies. And um, and so RBD, you can think of it as a very early clinical marker of Parkinson's disease. Now, not all patients have it. It's only probably between 30 to 50% of people with PD also had RBD before. Um, so this, this is a, a huge advantage for us. In, in the sense of, if, again, if we're going back to finding treatments and why we failed uh, in different trials, another reason that can explain why we keep failing is that when we recruit people into clinical trials, we already recruit people who have 
active Parkinson's disease. They were already diagnosed based on their motor symptoms. And when you when these motor symptoms appear, like the tremor and the slowness of movement and the stiffness of the muscles, the rigidity, uh, it occurs when already 50% of or more of the dopaminergic cells in the brain region, the substantia nigra in the brainstem, is uh, the, they are either dead or in the process of dying. So when we recruit these people into clinical trials, we give them drugs that's supposed to work on cells that are, as I said, are already dead or in the process of dying. So it's possible that the drugs could work if we start them much earlier. And studying RBD gives us uh, a huge advantage in this sense, because as I mentioned, um, the average time from having RBD until they have Parkinson's is 10 to 12 years earlier. So we can actually identify these individuals much earlier. And once we have treatments or one we, once we want to test treatments that can possibly uh, delay the onset of Parkinson's disease or maybe even completely stop it, using this population um, could give us a huge advantage. And um, so my lab uh, collected the world's largest cohort of individuals with RBD. And what we're doing together with many collaborators from all over the world, we are doing genetic analysis on all of them. So for example, we mentioned GBA. So also people with RBD, the, probably the most important gene for them is GBA. Um, we find that, um, for example, here in Canada, people with RBD, uh, about 12% of them have uh, mutations in GBA, which is a lot. So it's tightly related to GBA. And uh, we're, we're trying to understand how genetics affect um, the risk for having RBD and how genetics affect the progression of RBD, because I told you the average is 10 to 12 years until they develop Parkinson's, but some people develop Parkinson's uh, a year after the diagnosis of RBD, and some people develop Parkinson's 30 years after. So we're asking ourselves, are there genes or genetic variants that, that, that are responsible for that or partially responsible for that? Um, why some people take so long to develop uh, Parkinson's after the diagnosis of RBD and while others so fast. So obviously it's not only genetics, it could also be, or even mostly um, environmental exposures, but there's no doubt that genetic takes place. And um, identifying these people who are progressing faster is actually also crucial for clinical trials, because if we ever want to do clinical trial on people with uh, RBD and we want to see if our drug can stop the progression from RBD to Parkinson's, we want to recruit people who are going to progress fast because we cannot do a clinical trial over 10 years or 15 or 20 years. Usually typical clinical trials are a year or two. So we want to identify these individuals who are going to progress faster and try to and ask them to, be, to, to join uh, clinical trials. And this is one of the things that, that my lab is focused on. Again, related to precision medicine, understanding how genetics related to those that progress fast, those that progress slower, and uh, in helping uh, identifying the right individuals for uh, right for the different treatments that we're going to try in the future. Wow, so it's incredible because one of the great benefits of what you're doing, looking to the genetics and behind some Parkinson's disorders is for individuals who have RBD, if we're able to, if we're one day able to identify 
that these patients are going to be able to for sure develop Parkinson's disease. We're able to identify what that subset is. Then we'll be able to treat these patients before the symptoms like onset, which is really great because then there, like you said, there's going to be a dopamine network still that's sufficient in their brain. So maybe there can be a rescue of them. Exactly. That's exactly our goal. Wow. That's incredible. I'm, it's definitely something that I will be following up over the next little while as new research. I'm sure that's something that would interest a lot of our listeners tuning in today. Okay. Well, is unless there's anything else you'd like to go into for REM sleep disorders or lysosomal dysfunction and Parkinson's disease, I think that wraps up most of my questions. Well, I just want to, to say one thing, that, uh, which is uh, thank you to um, you know, there are all our research, everything that we're doing, we, we, we cannot do without uh, people with Parkinson's disease and the family uh, members and the caregivers who, who, join, you know, who join these trials, who join these studies and help us um, by, you know, by providing themselves, by giving us access to their DNA and to learn it and um, maybe take you know, blood from them and, and create neurons and learn from that. So I want to just thank everybody who participates and help us um, doing this research, and I think the only w- that's the only way to do it by working together with the patient community and with the um, with the family members of patients um, to make this happen. So again, thank you. Wow, that's an incredible point. I know Parkinson's patients and caregivers it takes such a toll on them. So when they are offering up their time or whatever they are doing in their clinical trials, it makes such a big difference because maybe it's not going to work out for them or they've progressed, but they're really putting in work so that way we can understand the disease more. So hopefully the next person who gets it might have a little bit greater background information so that therapy can be addressed a little more. Absolutely. I, you know, I always tell my, my trainees, my students and my postdocs uh, to always think about uh, the patients that everything we do, we want to do things that will eventually, in potential, could help uh, people with Parkinson's disease. And we cannot forget that. We cannot forget that there are people there that are relying on us to eventually find something that will help them. Um, you know, we're not doing this just to advance our careers and, um, and you know, be famous or whatever. We're doing this because it's important. It helps people. Um, you know, the burden is on those, like you said, there's a huge burden of the, of the patients, people with Parkinson's disease. There's a huge uh, burden on their uh, family members and caregivers. And this, this burden is, is physical. It's just difficult to have Parkinson's disease. And, but it's also social and it's also psychological. It's also financial. And Parkinson's disease rates, they go up, you know, the world population ages. And now we have maybe 6 million um, people with Parkinson's over the world. In 2050, there will be 10, 12 million. And we have to find a way to, to stop this. And we cannot, again, we cannot do this without the involvement of, of people with Parkinson's. So huge thank you. Wow. I also would like to thank you so much for coming into this episode and tuning in with us. Like I said, this is a pretty new initiative that we started. Um, it really, we just started the podcast last year, but it's really great to hear different perspectives from such prominent researchers like you and to see that there is work being done and that the people leading the work really care about the patients and 
it's just all around great. And I really want to thank you again for being on this episode. Yeah, and thank you for doing this. It's really important, all this, you know, providing this information to everybody who listens and um, get people engaged. It's, it's really important. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, that has been this week's episode of Parkinson's in Perspective. We'd like to thank our volunteer, G.U. Lee, for helping with research and question development for this episode, in addition to also helping out with the transcript. We'd also like to thank our volunteer, Vivian Lee, for assisting with the transcript. McGill Students for Parkinson's Awareness works closely with Parkinson's Quebec, a foundation dedicated to providing support services to Parkinson's patients and their caregivers, as well as contributing to research, advocacy, and education. If you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's disease and would like to know more information on support services, physiotherapy, and dance classes specifically for Parkinson's patients and other services, please visit parkinsonsquebec.ca for more information. Thank you all so much for listening and visit our website if you'd like to know more information about fundraising events and subscribe so you never miss an episode.